If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 7. If it's, uh, you don't have a Bible under the seats, there are Bibles, and you can find our passage on page uh, 1031. And uh, this passage is an interlude passage. It comes between the seven seals. And we uh, spoke on the seven seals uh, two weeks ago. And this comes between the sixth and the seventh seal. And so it's a picture of, uh, of the church uh, in heaven and on earth. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from uh, the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Ishakar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Our God and Father, what an amazing picture this is. What amazing encouragement this is to God's people. What an incredible hope we have, not only on earth, but in heaven. Father, I pray that as your word is now opened up before us, that your hand would be upon Pastor Barry, that the fruit of his meditation and the fruit of his contemplation and the fruit of his hard work and study will be to our benefit. Would you give us minds and hearts and wills that are submissive to your spirit, would you help us see Christ? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are, back in the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter. The simple message this morning is that sealed ones are safe ones. Are you a sealed one? 
Do you know the Lord? Are you born again? It means you're a sealed one. What I want you to take home this morning more than anything else, that if you are a sealed one, you are a safe one. Not because of anything in you, but because of something in the divine and eternal purpose of God for you to the eternal praise of his glory and his grace. Remember at the beginning of the book of Revelation? It's only about four years ago, I think, that we started this book. We've been doing it in little pieces, but there's a, a, an image of of the Ancient of Days who is clothed in, in all splendor and he's, he's located in a particular place, a standing amidst the candlesticks and there's something in his right hand and it is the seven stars, all of those candlesticks, all of those stars representing the churches. What this vision now expounds is what does it look like to have the Ancient of Days standing in your midst? What does it look like to be in the hand of the one who is the ancient of days? The main point is this, is that the church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. Do you belong to the church of Jesus Christ? Are you born again? Then this has a, a very significant personal implication for you. If the church of Jesus Christ is indestructible, it means that your own life, your own soul, your own everything is in God's hand. It's not a new truth. It's a very, very old truth about God's dealings with his people. But it's shown in a provocative way in this vision. That's what I want to get through to your head this morning, how it, how it takes an old truth and it's picked up and Jesus gives it to John and John passes it on to smack the church between the eyes with the vividness of a vision of an old truth. And that old truth is the indestructible nature of God's people. The church perseveres, right? The church perseveres. In the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of, of all kinds of difficulties and oppressions. Why? Because God himself has undertaken to seal them, to protect them by knowing them, by knowing their number, by counting them, by making them an innumerable multitude from our own human perspective. To put his throne in the midst of them and to be their shepherd. You see, it is a pastoral message. It's a message not to scare us or to perplex us. The book of Revelation isn't putting in at the end of the book in order to confuse. There's a, there's a good pastoral word from Jesus. Let's, let's close up Revelation for the word of obscurity that it'll take him thousands of years to talk about this and try to figure it out. It's a plain pastoral message of comfort for God's people about the indestructible nature of those whom God has sealed. And in the order of the book, in the structure of the book, don't lose sight of the fact that it's for those churches. The vision is for the churches that John has previously written to, seven epistles. It's the same message in new vocabulary. What he said to them in, in epistle tone, now he, he picks up and he proclaims to them through the visions. What does heaven do with a church as it is described earlier in this book in these seven, seven letters to the seven churches? What, what does heaven do with churches like that? Churches that are lukewarm, churches that have lost their first love, churches that face satanic oppression, churches that are lost in sexual promiscuity, sexual churches, or churches that are defiled with the defilement of idolatry. What does heaven do with, with the perplexity of the condition 
of Christ's church on earth? Does, does heaven fold its arms and say, oh my goodness, I don't think they're going to make it. This vision addresses that exact situation. What does heaven do? Heaven graciously, mercifully peels back the curtain. Remember, that's what the word revelation means. It simply, it means, it simply means an uncovering, a, a, a taking off of the lid. This vision is a gracious and merciful peeling back of the curtain and flooding those struggling churches with a vision of God's perspective on things. This is how I see the church as my sealed one. You see, it, those churches, if they continue to be governed in their thinking and in their behavior simply by their material circumstances, simply by their own physical eyes can see, then yeah, they're in a lot of trouble. But if in divine mercy, something of the divine realities can be peeled back and exposed to them and shown to them, they're going to persevere. And that's exactly what this vision is for. See, Jesus, as a shepherd, as a pastor of these churches, shows them things through John to grasp truth in a new way. And See, you know, we, we often learn things first by hearing it. But have you ever heard something over and over and over again, and then, and then you grasp it in a new way because you can see it? Somebody has, has said it in a particular way using language that, that helps you imagine it, that helps you visualize it, and, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing through John for the churches, taking the message about God's perspective of sealing the church and saying, I want you to not only hear this truth, I want you to see it. It's a vision. It's meant for the for the imagination. It's meant for the visual senses to flood our thinking about what the church looks like from heaven's perspective. Now, I hope that the visions of this book fill our imaginations. I hope that you can never ever pray again without how without thinking in your own imagination about what prayer is like, as we've seen in this book, about prayer as being incense that ascends into the throne room presence of God, and God tells all of a very noisy heaven to be quiet. I'm going to give my attention to that, those words that are ascending to me, and those words that are ascending then are, are hurled back to the earth in those incense carriers as the purpose and will of God. I, like, does that completely change prayer for you? It does for me. See, you're, you're not just learning about prayer, you're, you're seeing prayer. And the same thing is true of our perseverance. Now, I, you've heard me say this many times over and over, that, that our imagination doesn't create divine realities. And I'm going to say it again. Your imagination does not create any divine realities. I don't care how you imagine God. God does, isn't as you imagine him. He is as he is. But this is something different. This isn't an imagination gone rogue, just like those imaginations about prayer. This is the one who creates divine reality, saying, this is what should be in your head. It's an amazing thing. How do you imagine your perseverance? <laughs> don't tell me you don't have an imagination. Uh, I'm close to that, but I can imagine some things. How do you imagine your, your, your own perseverance? Like, what, 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 how do you think of yourself in this world? Are you maybe hanging on the end of a rope? Would that, would that describe, really, if you were honest, like, okay, this is what I, my, my spiritual life is, is kind of like, just hanging on the end of a rope saying, come, Lord Jesus, I'm losing my grip. If you don't come soon, I think I might fall and be lost. 
How about sleeping underneath a palm tree? Would that describe your, your, your spiritual condition and your understanding of what it looks like to, to be owned by God and, and, and be following God in this world? Well, how about this for your imagination? How about an omnipotent power that sovereignly controls the entire earth and says to the winds over the four corners of the earth, stop representing all the harm that God in his providential wisdom would allow to come onto the world in order to teach the world that it's not a good idea to set yourself up as God in this world. And all the harm that God allows into this world. How about this for your imagination where God says, no, stop, not on my watch, uh-uh, no way. You will not harm these ones. How about this? Ever imagine what, what, what the Christian life to, to acknowledge that salvation belongs to the Lamb, to, to trust in Jesus? How about this? A chorus of angels in heaven who resound with an, an amen? Do you ever understand, imagine your life and your worship of Christ as making heaven a very noisy place? That's why God says, just be quiet so I can hear. And well, no, no, I, I, could, I, could never, I could never imagine anything like that, that confession of Christ would, would make angels roar in heaven. Well, believe the vision. See, it's not a vision to obscure truth. And that's why I'm spending time on this. A lot of people think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's just difficult to understand. You see, it's not a new doctrine that, that we need this vision for. It. It's to understand an old doctrine in, in a new way. You struggle with the visions? How about this? How about a proverb? Understand the proverbs? Can you handle a proverb? Does that scare you? Listen to this, Proverbs chapter. I, I, I get stuck on this every time I read through this book because it uses the word dread, and I find it paradoxical that in a lot of Christians' dialogue on, on the book of Revelation, the discussion is filled with, with the very dread that the book says that we shouldn't have. Listen to this, uh, Proverbs 1.33. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Are you listening to God? You will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Without dread of disaster. That, that's a proverb. How about a psalm? Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but love the butts of the scripture, but the Lord delivers them out of how many of them? Out of all of them. How about an epistle? Can you handle an epistle? Philippians 1.6. I'm pretty sure, Paul says. I, no, he says, I am convinced. I'm absolutely sure that he who began a good work in us will bring it unto completion. How about the word peace? Do you like the word peace over and over again in the, in the New Testament? The, the churches are addressed with these words, grace and peace. Grace means to know that you are enriched. And this is what peace means, and it's what this vision is all about. Peace means that we know that we are secure, that we're safe. You don't have any peace unless you are convinced that you are safe. See, it, it's... It's not a message, a vision to, to obscure. And John is a pastor. He, he loves the church. And it's a vision that proclaims something to the seven church in a powerful way. And it wasn't intended for the church's idle speculation about it for the, for the next few centuries. You know, the devil would have us do that, really. 
It was to bring the, the entire and the full weight of the vision, and I'm going to show this how in just a minute. The, 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 the vision uses the entire weight and the, the depth and the, the, the breadth of all of redemption history and showing how it all comes to bear, all of God's dealings with his people throughout history. All of it comes to bear upon Christ and those who follow the Lamb as history makes its progress to the end where all are safe, all who belong to the Lamb or in a place of eternal rest. And so it's full of Old Testament images, full of it. You, if you had a pair of scissors and some tape, you could put this vision together by, don't do it, by cutting your Old Testament to pieces and just pasting it all together. And you see, the reason for that is because that was what was familiar with them. John isn't speaking in a way to try to perplex them. He's speaking in a way intentionally to make it plain to them. And if you don't understand it, if I don't understand it, it means that we've thrown our Old Testament away and given up on it as having any purpose and any use. Let me show you. It's not cryptic. It's just the opposite. It's meant to make things plain to us uses things that are familiar to Old Testament readers. The wind is an Old Testament metaphor for God's sovereign control of the old earth from, from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The census of Israel comes from the book of Numbers. The multitude itself comes from the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 15 and 17. The sealing comes from Ezekiel chapter 9 where God tells the prophet Ezekiel, go through the city and mark on the forehead, which is itself a, a symbol of where God's law is meant to be from the book of Deuteronomy. Mark on my people, those, in other words, who are loving my law. That's what this seal is all about. And we'll see later in the book that it has a counterfeit. The book's full of counterfeits. Jesus has a counterfeit. The seal has a counterfeit. The, the bride has a counterfeit. The city of God has a counterfeit. Deception's whole shtick in this world is to deceive through counterfeit. That's why John peels back the the layers and shows them you need to see the real stuff because you're living in a world of counterfeits. The white robes come from Zechariah chapter 13. The palm branches is, is a, a Levitical worship, a choreography out of the book of Leviticus where people use palm branches to, to give thanks and to praise the Lord for his sustaining goodness to them through, through the inbringing of the, of, of the crops. The, uh, the, the washed in blood comes from Isaiah chapter 4. You ever try to wash anything in blood? It comes from the book of Isaiah. The shepherd comes from Ezekiel chapter 34 where God says, my shepherds are bad shepherds and there comes a day, there's going to come a day where God himself will come and will shepherd his people. Isaiah chapter 49 is, is the last part of the vision. is extent, almost a, a complete quote from Isaiah chapter 49. To wipe every tear away comes from Isaiah chapter 25, where God says that he will feast his people on his mountain, and I will wipe away every tear of theirs. You see, these are all images that Old Testament people reading their Bibles would, would lay hold of and say, this is all of the weight and depth and breadth. You know what a, you know what a ballast is? Of course you do. It's so that you don't tip over. It's bringing all of the weight of God's redemption history to bear upon the church of Jesus Christ. The tribulation that is spoken of comes from Daniel chapter 12, and, and John has already spoke of it to the church in Thyatira, who are described as going through a great tribulation. The vision answers the question, who can stand? A great question. Who can stand, as Paul mentioned earlier? It, it, it's, a, it's an interlude in the in, in the judgments that are described on earth, 
providentially allowed by God to wake people up and people cry out, who can stand? Well, this vision is the answer to that question. Can you stand if you're a sealed one, if you belong to the Lamb? The sealed ones are a group that are described as servants of God. And the rest of the chapter then describes these servant, but in, in three different ways. What do the servants of God look like? Three different ways. That is, John expounds what it means to be sealed. It doesn't leave it just as a vague idea. It doesn't just say, well, they're sealed and, and on we go. There's a, a further an expansion of, of uh, an expounding in the vision of, of what does God mean when he holds back the winds and he says, seal them. Well, it means, first of all, that they're known and they're protected by God. Secondly, it means that they're triumphant over pressure to conform. Not militant in a, in a hopeless way, but in a triumphant way. And thirdly, that they are purchased by Christ now and forever in all, all of eternity into a place of peace and rest and comfort eternally. Where they're not just protected from harm, they're completely removed from harm's path. In other words, John understands these servants of God and and the one group through the entire chapter, the, the sealed ones, the, the servants of God, he sees them from three different perspectives. He sees them from heaven's perspective. That's the 144,000. He sees them from a human perspective. And John sees it. He says, I can't even number them. I, 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 I can't count them. There's just too many. And they come from every nation. That's what it looks like from a human perspective to try to see the church. And then finally, he sees them in that eternal perspective in a place of eternal rest and glory. But notice when they are sealed. Notice when they are sealed. Before, that's why the winds are held back, re representing the, the four horsemen, the four uh, descriptions of the harm that, that God allows onto the earth. When are they sealed? They're sealed. Don't, don't allow anything to happen until my people are sealed. It's not a new truth. That's a very, very old truth. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1, 4, where he says that he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Don't accept a new doctrine from the book of Revelation. It's old doctrine in a fabulous, vivid, provocative way. Before there's any harm, seal them. And then coexisting realities, as a horseman do, they come. And as I said, in the providence of God, in his judgment upon the earth, to teach the earth that it's not a good idea to set yourself up as God in God's world. There are those who live in the midst of it as sealed ones. First of all, described as 144,000. Now, they are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And John does not see this number. He only hears it. And that in itself says so much. It's not for John to know the number. John can't know it by seeing. Only God can see those that he has sealed before the foundation of the world. But there's a difference throughout the book of Revelation between what John hears and what John sees. He sees this 144,000. No, sorry, he hears the number of this 144,000, and then he sees the multitude. As previously in the book, he, he heard the lion of the uh, tribe of Judah. He didn't see it. He heard it. But when he turned to, to see it, what he saw expounded what he heard. It wasn't a lion at all. But the lion of the tribe of Judah was carried out through the manifestation of a lamb. So it is here. He hears the number. And he sees something that expounds further the, the meaning of that number, which is a great multitude beyond number that can be counted. 
144,000 is a symbolic number, far too tidy of a number to represent anything that would be literal from any description of God's census in the Old Testament. As one commentator called it, a suspiciously tidy number. And the list of the tribes itself is, is suspiciously different than any list in the Old Testament. Judah listed first. Judah wasn't the firstborn, but he is the one of which the Messiah would come. The four children that came from the slaves of Jacob. His wife says, here, sleep with my slaves. That'll give us children. Are pushed up in the list to four, three, four, five, and six to represent an outcast that is brought into the numbers of Israel. Dan isn't even there at all. Dan was associated with the idolatry and the treachery of the northern kingdom that we just spent a lot of time talking about as we went, went through the book of 1 Kings. There's a very, very different kind of list. 144,000, where they get the number 12 times 12, whether that's 12 tribes with times the 12 thrones or 12 tribes times the 12 apostles, representing all of God's voice and speaking to his people, times 1,000, which is a number of of completion and fullness and perfection. But it represents a numbered group symbolizing or that is symbolic of something that is true of all sealed ones, okay? Ever had somebody knock on your door and say, are you one of the 144,000? Well, yes, you are. Absolutely you are. You believe in Jesus? Are you a sealed one? The number is symbolic to say something that is true of, of all sealed ones and this is this is what it's meant to portray that the 12 tribes of israel arrayed as a group from heaven's perspective shows that the sealed ones are a known number counted by god alone and owned by him okay again this isn't this isn't to be cryptic this isn't to to make people scratch their heads and go Hmm, I, I wonder what in the world John was talking about. This is an intentional desire to be plain. It comes from the book of Numbers. Numbers particular, Numbers 3 in particular, where, where the people of Israel come up out of Egypt, and the first thing that God does in the gathering of his people, he says, present yourself. Present yourself before God. And God numbers his people. And what, what God's numbering of his people represents is his ownership. To number something is an exercise of your dominion over something. To number something is an exercise of your right to say, I own you. You ever number something? You, ever, you go home and whatever it is that belongs, you say, well, I've got so many of this. You, you number them, right? They belong to you. It's, it's, it, they're yours. Remember when David tried to number the people? <laughs> A plague fell on Israel. Why? David, that is not for you to do or to know. This is a sovereign right of God to know and to count his people. How many are there? It's known alone by God. It's not a number that John could see. It's not a number that, that John could know. He could only hear the number, but know this, that God knows the number. He knows each and every single one of us. And it is a tidy number. Why? Because he knows the exact number, exactly like Jesus said in John chapter 6. All that the Father has given to me will come to me and I will not lose one of them. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Look at the sparrows and, and know this also, that God knows even the hair, number of hairs on your head. Well, more importantly, he knows how many heads are his. 
We don't know the number, but God does. And the 144,000 represents an exact number of which God knows each and every one. You see, our strength isn't in knowing our numbers. Our strength is knowing that we are numbered. We're fixated on numbers. Well, so is God. But it's to our safety and to our glory and to our protection. Our strength isn't in knowing our numbers. Our strength is in knowing that we are numbered. And this group is, is, is a numbered group. It, it represents something else, and I could spend a lot of time on this, but, but I'm not going to right now. It's also a military census. You see, they're, they're coming up out of Egypt. They're in the desert being counted by God. What are they going to do next? They're going to fight. They're going to fight all of the nations of the world, and all of whom would hear of their coming and tremble. Why? Not because of their numbers, but because that if, if this is a covenantally faithful people, they are indestructible. And notice the word if. If they are a covenantally faithful people, they are indestructible. Arrayed as an army before God. Not as a multitude that no number could count because God wasn't exalted by huge armies. He was exalted by small numbers that would take out huge numbers. And that's why the nations, their whole thing, their whole trick, their whole thing with the nation of Israel was to introduce idolatry. Because a covenantally unfaithful people could be destroyed. So the second group is, is what John does see. And he sees it from a human perspective. And, and the sealed ones, they're not only a numbered people, they're also an innumerable multitude of nations. And that's from what John can actually see as a further description of all the truth of, of what he has just heard. Just like the lamb is a further description of what he heard in the lion. We'll see it later too, where the, the city and the bride is switched out in Revelation chapter 21. From John's perspective, there are an innumerable multitude from nations which goes back to the, the promise of Abraham. You see, this is how big Jesus is. This is how big Christ is. All the things that God said, all the way back to Abraham, where, where he took out Ab Abraham, he says, Abraham, Abraham, I, I don't understand it. And this is another example of, of, a, a, of a, a divinely sanctioned imagination. Abraham, I'm going to take you outside. I'm going to show you the stars. And what you see in the stars, I want you to uh, use those stars to imagine what's going to come from you. That's exactly the picture that, that this vision evokes. And what John sees, based upon the reality of what he has heard, is that they are a victorious and a triumphant multitude. Not because of, of the way that any Old Testament Israelite army would fight because they got better chariots and, and, and sharper spears and, and, and swords, but because they belong to the Lamb. It's the, it's the blood of the lamb that makes them victorious. They've been washed clean. They've been, they've been purchased by the lamb. And their song of salvation makes heaven a noisy place. Now, I, I mentioned it earlier. I'm going to listen to this from Ephesians chapter, Ephesians chapter 3. I've been reading through Ephesians this week. This is what Paul in Ephesians 3 says about the church. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Okay, he's talking about us, the church. The wisdom of God being made known by us, and then listen to what he says next, to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. That, that is cosmic in its scope. And it's described exactly here in the book of Revelation chapter 7, where, where people, where, where, where the sealed ones attribute their, their safety and their victory to the Lamb. And the angels pick it up. 
the angels, the chorus of heaven say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We made that happen. Well, actually, the Lamb made it happen. But it's the purpose in, in God that through the Lamb that this kind of glory be brought to the throne of God. It's an amazing picture, but notice how what John is, when he says, well, well what's going on here? And, and, he's, and he's told of, of how this happens, and he's told this, that they are coming out of the great tribulation. Again, that comes from Daniel chapter 12. A lot of things have been said also about, about this tribulation time, great tribulation. I, I have been most helped by simply by looking at the understanding of the word tribulation in the book in, earlier in the book when John says I am your servant and your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom of God in other words John says I'm in it and it the Greek word simply means pressure I love how Daryl Johnson puts it and his book is in the library it's called discipleship on the edge if you'd ever like to to read through it it's a really a refreshing way to to pick up the book of Revelation and, and take a look at it. He describes tribulation as pressure like this, as the, as the Teutonic plates of the earth living, uh, that, that create pressure. Like we live in on a, on a fault line, the San Andreas Fault. As, is that the name of the fault we live on? We live on a fault line <laughs> where there's, <laughs> there's, there's pressure. And to live along the fault line is dangerous. And this is what tribulation is. It's the pressure of two different kingdoms that are colliding. And there's pressure to live along the fault line. I hope you, I hope you don't just easily dismiss that or discount that before you talk to somebody who has their kids in our school system or somebody whose very existence of employment and self-sustaining requires government money of which there is pressure to deny the things that, that they, they believe about what it looks like to follow the Lamb or they'll lose everything. The apostles encourage the church in Acts chapter 14 that it is through tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. You see, it's not through the absence of difficulty that the church perseveres, but rather a real and vital connection to the Lamb is what makes the difference. They don't achieve their victory through a painless disappearance, but it says that through the tribulation, through the great tribulation, present tense, coming out, not will come out or have come out, but, but are coming out. Here's another thing to fill your imagination. Every generation of the people of God. Have I've, I've ever seen the death clock on the internet? It's like 100 people a minute die in this world. And throughout every single generation since the apostles, there have been those that have emerged out of tribulation into the very presence and comfort of God. You also will be part of one generation that emerges out of this place into the very presence of God, out of tribulation. Not only out of it, but, but through it. Because you see, what tribulation does is it purifies us. Peter says, don't be surprised when you face all kinds of difficulties and trials and temptations. Don't, don't let it unnerve you. Don't let it shock you. First Peter chapter 4. It's the same message here. Rutherford, centuries ago, a pastor, Samuel Rutherford, said, grace withers without adversity. Spurgeon, again, hundreds of years ago, wrote, enduring evil in this world is, to the Christian, simply God's goodness in a mysterious form. How does it work? You say, well, all this, I don't get it. I, all of this stuff about blood and the lamb and and victory and conquering and angels and stuff like that. What, what, is it, what does it look like? Let me tell you. That by the blood of the Lamb, there is created in us not merely a life insurance policy, 
There is created in us through all of our washing, through taking away of all of our defilement. There is a, a, a new identity that is given to us by God. That's what the white robe signifies. A new identity is given to us in this world where we don't give a wit about our reputation in this world anymore. And I'm convinced in the day and age of which we live right now, that's a big issue. People care about their reputation on earth. And what Revelation said, when I read about, about, the, about, about what your reputation in heaven is like, and that's what it looks like to, to follow the Lamb, where people give it up. Give up your reputation on earth. Don't worry about what people will think about you. Don't worry about what people will say if you say you're a Christian, if you believe in the Bible. Give it up and take instead the reputation that is promised that it is now even there in heaven. That's what it looks like. It is a new identity. The third perspective is of the sealed ones is their eternal comfort in heaven. See, the book of Revelation gets us to heaven many times. It's not just the end of the book. We get there and we come back. We get there and we come back. We get there and we come back. It, there's, there's a continual glimpse and, and, and a, a look into heaven. Not just one, but many. There's an old saying that says, in heaven we'll be, we will be more happy but not more secure. Do you believe that? Do you believe you're secure? Do you believe that you will be more happy, more happy? Again, it's using Old Testament vocabulary. It comes from Isaiah chapter 49. It comes, comes from Psalm 91. It comes from Isaiah 25. And John sees these sealed ones, not merely protected from the devastation and the tribulation on the earth, but completely removed from it. And, and the, the way that the text ends is, is a deliberate calculation to coincide exactly with all of the harm, all of the tribulation of the four horsemen. We're no longer conquered. We have a throne in our midst. We're no longer facing the scorching heat and the sun and the scarcity. Our shepherd is feeding us and taking care of us. We no longer suffer the mourning of death. And if you know nothing about any of the way that the other horsemen bring their harm and all of the scarcity and all of the, the war that so many Christians through the centuries have experienced, you at least know this, that death brings tears. It brings pain and it brings sorrow. And this is a, a glimpse. It's a, it's, a, it's a glimpse of encouragement and of hope. For the Christian, where all of these things will be removed from us. Psalm 50 says this, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Would you please stand? And I'm going to close by reading a psalm, as I like to often do. Please stand with me, and I'm going to read Psalm 142. I trust the words of the psalmist more than myself to articulate the prayerful vocabulary and how to respond to a vision like this. David wrote this psalm from a cave, and this is what it says when he was in the cave. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, and you will deal bountifully with me. Amen. Good.
our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of an eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.